Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology. In this 48th episode of the show, we're going to embark on a journey from the Amazonian rainforest to the pharmacy as we retrace the pathway of bringing a botanical drug to market to treat serious cases of diarrhea as an FDA-approved drug. I first encountered the source of this drug 20 years ago in the heart of the Peruvian Amazon, locally known as Sangre de Drago, or sometimes even Sangre de Grado, or the dragon's blood tree. It is used in traditional medicine for both topical and internal afflictions. Its bark is a smooth, pale gray, and a slip of a knife dragged across the bark reveals a weeping blood-red latex from which it gets its name. The scientific name of the plant is Croton lecherly, and it is a member of the Euphorbiaceae family, or the Spurge family. My fascination with this species was further stoked when it was announced as the second ever FDA-approved botanical drug and is now prescribed to treat HIV-related diarrhea. Now, let me introduce you to the special guest of this episode. I'm super excited to speak with him today because he has been part of this full journey from forest to drug approval and market launch of this very special medicine. Dr. Stephen King is Executive Vice President of Sustainable Supply and Ethnobotanical Research and Intellectual Property at Jaguar Health and Napo Pharmaceuticals. Previously, he worked with Shaman Pharmaceuticals from 1990 to 2001, where he was in charge of international relations, ethnobotanical field research, conservation, and long-term supply of plant material for Shaman's research and development activities. While working with Shaman Pharmaceuticals, he and a diverse array of colleagues conducted extensive field research on the long-term sustainable harvest and management of croton lecherly. The results of this research on the sustainable supply has been disseminated widely in Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. Prior to joining Shaman, Dr. King worked as a chief botanist for Latin America for the Nature Conservancy in Washington, D.C. And before joining the Nature Conservancy, he worked at the National Academy of Sciences as part of the Committee on Managing Global Genetic Resources, where he focused on managing the genetic resources of tree species. Dr. King earned his PhD in biology as a doctoral fellow of the Institute of Economic Botany of the New York Botanical Garden and his Bachelor's of Art in Human Ecology from the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine. He has focused his research on food and medicinal plant species in the highlands and tropical forest regions of Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. He's conducted field research in Mexico, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Paraguay, Nigeria, Tanzania, Nepal, and Papua New Guinea. And he has published 60 scientific papers and delivered 70 presentations on the process and results of his research collaborations. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Stephen. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Cassie. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'd like to take us back to the beginning. What can you teach us from those early days? How did this journey into the medicinal potential of dragon's blood begin? Um, it's, a, it's a long story. I won't make it too long, but first I absolutely have to offer to you my, my sincere congratulations for your most recent publication on the antivirulence effects against MRSA. I really admire your group and the work that you're doing as an interdisciplinary, uh, highly focused and effective team, and you're a great communicator, so I, I had to say that. <laughs> Thanks um, so much. 
it. And I need it sincerely. I also, just going back to the beginning, I got to do just a, a moment of ancestor uh, uh, worship, if you will. Uh, we did begin this journey uh, 30 years ago, about in 1990. Lisa Conti was our founder of this company and still is uh, the CEO of the company. I've been working with her for 30 years. But we started working with a cross-section of uh, pharmacologists, ethnobotanists, scientists, um, in an interdisciplinary fashion, including some, I would say, so, sort of the, the luminaries in our field um, who have, have left us, including people like, of course, Dr. Schultes, Robert Raffoff, uh, Norman Farnsworth, who helped us as we moved along through the process, Ted Anderson, a great Southeast Asian ethnobotanist, Koji Nakanishi, a natural products chemist, and Jim Duke, among many others. Those are some of the, our ancestors who, who basically taught and, and guided us and myself. Simultaneously, we had a lot of people helping us guided this process, including ethnobotanists and pharmacognosists that, that you and I both know, Elaine Lizabetsky, Maurice Ewu, Mike Balick, Joel Sejarto, Nat Kwanza, Tim Johns, Mark Plotkin, and my colleague Tom Carlson. So it was an interdisciplinary group of scientists from many disciplines, and we started looking at how plants are used for specific therapeutic indications uh, throughout the tropical regions of the world, specifically with indigenous people, which involved sending teams of ethnobotanists and physicians together to go to places like Peru, Nigeria, uh, Papua New Guinea, and interviewing healers about how they use plants for specific conditions. That was sort of the beginning of this journey and Croton Leclerai, which as you mentioned, you're very familiar with, is really a well-known plant by moms, grandmothers, healers, shamans, and ubiquitous throughout much of uh, the Western Hemisphere. In fact, you can find that latex from which our product is purified and extracted in health food stores in Zurich, Chicago, uh, Lima, Bogota, uh, as well, of course, in the rainforest and communities. Wow. And that I think you just did such a great job of explaining what a massive team effort it is to, to do this kind of research, bringing together all those areas of expertise. Yeah. And, and so what was your first experience with dragon's blood? Uh, yeah, my first experience, actually, I lived with a tribe of Angoteri Sequoia indigenous people in the northern Peruvian Amazon in 1978-79 for about nine months, pretty much uh, by myself uh, doing research on the medicinal plants and diet of, those, of that group. And that's why I first encountered it. I actually used it on some nasty cuts and sores on my ankles. I had the poor judgment to use GI jungle boots for the first six months, thinking that was a smart thing to do in the rainforest. And turns out uh, they, they don't do so well on gringo feet in the moist, humid tropics. So I had some issues and I used it. And that was my first encounter. That's great. Yeah, I used it all over. I had, I was just covered in mosquito bites most mm -hmm. of my time in the Amazon. So mm -hmm. I have very yeah. sweet blood, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, can you tell us a bit more about some of the traditional uses of this plant? I know that it's applied topically and internally, but can you give us some more details on how it's used? Sure. Um, it's, uh, it's actually taken orally as uh, mixed with uh, sometimes, believe it or not, milk or trago, the sugarcane alcohol, or water. Uh, in pretty small quantities, about 10 drops three times a day for uh, a variety of things. Uh, believe it or not, also for... Um, coughs and flu, um, and of course for diarrhea and GI problems. It's also taken that way for ulcers, um, uh, and that's been pretty well documented, some of the, the therapeutic aspects of the constituents for ulcers. It's also used, as you said, for uh, topically for um, wound healing, for insect bites, for after tooth extractions, um, vaginal bath, um, and believe it or not, those are traditional. This one always amazed me. 
it's recently showed up in um, a, a very expensive eye makeup that Lady Gaga is, is promoting in Europe, I believe, in small quantities. That's, <laughs> that's not a traditional use, um, uh, of course. But so, yeah, a, a wide diversity of uses. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, and traditionally, I know for small scale harvest, how do people typically harvest it? And how does that differ from the larger scale production that you've worked on? Understood. Um, it's fascinating, actually. This is one of those things that I know you've seen in your research throughout the world. It's part of living pharmacy. So you will find this, this fast-growing pioneer tree species around the homes of people uh, throughout the lowland Amazonian regions of Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia, and also among at least 100 different indigenous groups of those areas. Uh, generally, what people do who have the living pharmacy growing in their backyard is if a child has a cut or somebody has an issue, um, a health issue, diarrhea, they would make a cut with a machete or a knife and a little bit, as you mentioned, would drip out. Um, and then they would take it and apply it. Uh, there is also, in preceding our involvement, there is actually trade in this. It does show up, as I mentioned, in the markets throughout, say, Latin America. For people that would bring larger quantities to sell, like many medicinal plants are part of commerce in Andean countries, they would collect two, three liters or as much as they could, sell it directly to uh, consumers or sometimes to people that are coming through the area. Um, those cases, people would take the tree and fell the tree and then make cuts along the tree and collect uh, the material in a, in a leaf or plastic container. That produces a great deal more of the material than the small cut. When we first started, we of course wanted to develop a approach that would be like uh, collecting rubber, Hevea, rubber trees, um, which are so widespread and well-known around the world, make a slice, come back every couple of days, such as in the Western Amazon, the rubber tappers, and then uh, keep sort of a standing forest doing that. What we found um, was when we started having our colleagues, scientists, uh, foresters, making collections, uh, they would collect various quantities and then come back and use rubber tapping tools and so on. And they actually found that um, after five or six months, if you took say half a liter or a liter, the tree started to die. Uh, the leaves turned sort of yellowish and actually it would not survive. Uh, we actually simultaneously had sent some bark samples to Kew Botanic Garden to the expert on the morphology, believe it or not, of croton. Mm -hmm. And that expert actually told us, without knowing what our field scientists were observing, that the latissifers, those things that produce the latex in rubber trees, uh, regenerate when you cut them. Whereas in the case of croton, when you cut those latissifers, uh, they don't regenerate. And she said, I would expect these trees would start to dry out and possibly die if they were tapped wow. the tree. Mm -hmm. The difference, of course, in addition is that uh, this tree is a super fast growing. It grows to maturity in about eight years. Uh, in fact, it grows about a foot a month the first two years. You can almost watch it grow. Um, and it's, uh, it produces about half a million seeds once or twice a year. So it's it's all about being a pioneer, sun-loving species that given half a chance, a little bit of exposure to open gap, whether it be a forest, I mean, a, a garden or a road or a home or whatever, it grows. Um, so it's found throughout the, the Northwest Amazon. Rubber trees, of course, are much slower growing and take a lot longer to mature. And, and of course, a different morphology. So we harvest the entire tree, um, but we've been engaged in the planting and reforesting with our colleagues uh, from the very beginning and made that sort of a core part of our involvement with collaborating communities and, and, pe and people we work with. That is studying, learning, and then putting back into practice uh, some local methods of basically just collecting seedlings, putting them into small 
uh, forest nurseries and replanting them in agroforestry systems, no monocultures, no large-scale production. And um, between those two approaches, wild harvesting and reforestation, we are created basically a sustainable management. And uh, there is actually export of this material to other countries beyond us, not quite in our volumes, but about, it goes to about 25 countries in the world uh, in various quantities. Um, so there is a trade, and I, I think we're probably the only group that has invested literally uh, quite a bit of money, more than several million dollars in the long-term sustainable harvesting that is reforestation, training, research, the works. That's great. I, I really love that model that you've established with two key words, sustainability and also collaboration. And I think that's really at the heart of really the way that ethnobotanists are also trained is to do this kind of work in a collaborative fashion with local people. How has this impacted local economies? Um, it's a, it's a, it impacted them in, in a very positive way. Um, one of the things that we're pleased about is that, ironically, this compound, it's, a, it's 35 chiral centers, it's rather complex, uh, parenthesized, can't be made synthetically. So we are interconnected and interdependent with our, with our communities and our collaborators. Um, so they are both selling the material to us at a fair trade uh, approach to, to, to this plant-based medicine. And also, we've been, we pay for these reforestation activities and some occasional maintenance in various places. So there's a flow of income back, not directly to the communities and people, uh, actually thousands. I was thinking about it uh, since 1990. We've been doing this uh, uh, since that time. So there's, a, there's a, an ongoing flow of resources. Um, and it, it's, as I say, it doesn't, no, nobody makes a full-time living doing this, but what most people need is a portfolio of products and opportunities for income generation for the same stuff that we want for our kids and families, uh, clothes, school supplies, you know, food, whatever, whatever things uh, money actually is required for, they have those same uh, needs. Yeah, that's great. Well, and you mentioned something that's really important just now too, is the, the structural complexity of the active um, constituent. So can you tell us, is this, is it a single compound or is it a mixture of compounds? And um, how did, how did the research team come to find the active parts of the extract? Understood. Yes. Uh, that it, it, the, the, it is a, it is a complex um, of four constituents, uh, catechin, epicatechin, gallocatechin, and epigallocatechin. Um, and they are proanthocyanidins and prodelphinidins that are pretty ubiquitous and well-known throughout nature. The actual elucidation uh, and isolation of, the, of this complex, which is now a entity that's produced in a reproducible fashion over and over again, uh, thousands of batches, came from classic natural products, uh, structural elucidation chemistry, wasn't easy to do because with 35 chiral centers, and by the way, I'm definitely not a chemist, take no credit for that. My colleague Dave Season and Mike Tempesta and others made the initial extracts on the isolation and identification together. Um, it was challenging. Uh, some of the technology available at the time was, uh, wasn't able to, to easily identify the, uh, this, this complex compound. Um, we did have help from Koji Nakanishi, as I mentioned, the natural products chemist. But once isolated and identified, uh, my colleague Dave Seeson was able to make a, a, a extraction and purification procedure that produces the same uh, basic uh, mixture of these poly, polyphenols and pentathionines each time, in a, in a manner that satisfied the uh, U.S. FDA, including the botanical drug team of the FDA. 
Yeah. I, well, that's, that's really, I think, one of the, the key parts that differentiates it from the classic FDA pathway. Maybe we should talk a bit about that. And from my understanding, you have, we have many examples of compounds that have been isolated from plants that have been approved via the classic FDA pathway. These are single compounds. Think of things like, you know, morphine comes from a plant or was originally discovered in a plant, and that goes down that pathway. But here where you have a mixture of compounds, it needs to go through a different pathway. And, you know, you're team was real, they were really pioneers in this effort because there was only one other botanical drug approved before you guys reached approval. And that was for a topical ointment for warts. So can you take us down this path of approval and how challenging was it to move this complex mixture towards approval for an oral indication? Yeah. Um, I, I should be, I should say I'd be remiss if I did not this is uh, technically uh, classified as a new molecular entity. While it is a combination of those, those constituents, it is a new molecular entity uh, as per definition of the FDA. Um, you're right, uh, there's, there's, uh, even recently there's compounds approved from plants that are not modified. For instance, uh, the drug for epilepsy from CBD, um, that is, comes from a, a cannabis plant, a variety cultivated and extracted in the UK, and yet it was not, uh, sent into the U.S. FDA as a botanical drug because it was a highly purified uh, compound, uh, as, you, as, you were, as you mentioned. So in the case of this product, um, we had to show that we could reproduce the exact same new molecular entity each time and then conduct all the classic safety studies uh, and then efficacy studies required for any pharmaceutical, because as you know, it is a pharmaceutical per the definition, uh, but it has to go through botanical drug review, which adds additional requirements, including bioassays uh, of the batches and drug product, uh, adding additional hurdles to make sure that batch-to-batch -batch consistency was satisfactory to the FDA botanical drug reviewers. Um, we've actually done 21 clinical trials in humans uh, in a variety of therapeutic indications, and um, it's always the same drug, and it has to meet the same specifications each time. Uh, that part took some uh, some good natural product chemists and some very good natural product chemistry extraction and management of that process. Um, the process, uh, you know, ironically, there was no botanical drug review team prior to 2004. So we started working on this uh, uh, in 1990, as you know. So as we were moving forward, it was always viewed by us as a new molecular entity. Uh, when the botanical drug review uh, guidelines came out, they specified what would be defined as a straight-up uh, non-botanical non drug versus botanical. Obviously, we were viewed as a botanical drug because we were, were extracted from the plant. It's natural. It's organically you know, collected and so on, and, and nothing is it's added to it other than those excipients for the pill. So um, it had to show every time that the all the plant collection process, the locations, the, the controls applied to that process, as well as the purification and extraction would be reproducible each time. And of course, the safety and efficacy had to meet all the same standards as any pharmaceutical botanical uh, drug. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, how, how does this drug actually work? So we know the indication that's approved right now is for HIV-related diarrhea, but I I'm also aware that you guys are pursuing a number of other clinical applications for other forms of diarrhea. Um, yeah. How does it work? 
So um, it is it is approved for symptomatic relief of non-infectious diarrhea in adult patients who are on antiretroviral therapy. That's a long indication, but that's the only indication at the moment. And the mechanism of action is is actually it's new. It's a first-in-class ion-channel modulator. Um, literally, it, it it reduces the flow of chloride ions across the CFTR or the cystic fibrosis transmembrane receptor on the luminal side of the intestine and also at the calcium activated chloride channel receptor. So it, it, it basically slows the flow of those chloride ions as it passes through. Those are what pull the liquids through into the gut, into the intestine, and which cause diarrhea and dehydration, which in some cases, such as cholera, is, kills people. So um, what's fun about it is it works at a couple receptors. Um, it is, as I mentioned, a first in class. It's not an opiate and all that sort of thing. It doesn't constipate like those like those opiates that are causing so much trouble out there. Um, and um, it's, there's something else I wanted to mention about the, the mechanism. Um, it's, yeah, it's new and it's, it's unique. Um, oh, that's it, my favorite word. Uh, it, it, it hits several different receptors, and, and as you know in natural products, natural products uh, often have multiple activities, either in a synergistic fashion and or they're pleiotropic. They, they do several things at once, um, and this is an example of that in this product. Yeah, that's great. And so how, how is it currently administered? Is it as a pill? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a delayed release pill. Um, yes, and we are we sort of call it a pipeline within a product. In as much as crophelmer, that's the name of the active constituent. Um, it's we are developing it now for uh, chemotherapy induced diarrhea. Um, and you'll love this actually. That indication for humans. We're hoping to do our uh, pivotal trial sometime in the next year or so. Get it approved. But we're going to actually get it approved for chemotherapy-induced diarrhea in dogs first. Uh, we've been working with the Center for Veterinary Medicine at the FDA. We're actually um, pretty close to the final stages in that. Um, it'll be somewhat of a, of a orphan equivalent in the dog chemotherapy dog area. But, you know, dogs on chemo, um, it, it's serious. Obviously, people love their pets, uh, and the chemo can cause a lot of problems where they have to stop and or cause serious issues and it works by the same mechanism in dogs and believe it or not we've, we've developed some non-pharma products that have already been on the market for a while as well for full diarrhea a paste as well as um, a, a calf diarrhea product for dairy calves um, mm. those outside of the CVM um, but so we we've got these humans the animals um, and uh, the next one up on humans is the chemotherapy induced diarrhea which is a big deal because a lot of people have to stop chemo because of the intense effects of the various chemotherapy Those side effects, yeah. Given that you know, with the mole or something, you get constipated. That's not going to work. Well, and I think too, I don't know how often people think about this as a health problem, but diarrhea is a major killer across the globe, especially in children under the age of five. Um, yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. One of the things we um, we are also trying to develop is a different extract from the same tree called Leclamur SB300, um, that actually we're trying to get developed for uh, cholera-induced diarrhea um, for the very reason that you said, but almost have a half a million deaths a year due to cholera um, and, and a lot more deaths associated with general infectious and acute diarrhea. Um, we have done clinical trials at the International Diarrhea Center in Dhaka, Bangladesh, which is the international sort of uh, most highly regarded research center. Um, we, we did some trials there with crophelomer, and we showed that it reduced the flow of, 
of fluids in the first 27 hours, which is the death zone, sort of like on Everest, um, by six or seven liters. Um, but we, we know and we're certain that Lechlamer SB300, which is in a much higher abundance in the plant and much easier to produce and much cheaper to distribute, will also have a similar uh, efficacy and safety for cholera-induced diarrhea and other acute forms of infectious diarrhea. So um, we are, that's one of our goals, missions, in addition to moving uh, crophelomer uh, and mitesi into other indications is to get this product out there and available for uh, the populations who are, are dealing with cholera epidemics. And I guess there was a cholera pandemic, so um, to try and, try and address that human public health need as well. No, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. Those, you know, just the liters of fluids that are lost in those critical days, if you can, you know, stop or at least reduce that, that could have a huge impact on survival. Um, Those first 24 hours, um, you know, that's often when people die, they get, they get organ failure because of the the rapid loss of fluids. Yeah. Well, and then Lechlamir, is that also composed of parenthocyanidins or what is, what is the difference in composition between that and my TC? Great question. It's, 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 it is different. It contains some of the same constituents to get a catechin, epigallic catechin and so on. And then it has other constituents that are extracted and purified out of the crophelmer mitesi, uh, currently approved botanical drug. Um, and some of those constituents we're actually still working with uh, colleagues uh, to identify in what proportion, what ratio, because we have to be able to um, demonstrate the same batch-to-batch consistency. Uh, so it's, it's some of the similar and additional components that um, are no longer in the uh, Mitesi product. Hmm. And so one thing that comes to mind, I think, is that a lot of, a lot of our listeners are probably very familiar with dietary supplements, especially herbal dietary supplements. And I'm just wondering if there might be some confusion around the differences between a dietary supplement product and a botanical drug versus a regular drug. Can you elaborate on that a bit more? Just how is this different from a dietary supplement that you could pick up at your grocery store? Sure. Um, for first and foremost, um, a, a dietary supplement uh, does not require a prescription. A dietary supplement has uh, different levels of safety, efficacy, and manufacturing standards applied to it. Um, And perhaps more precisely, a pharmaceutical product obviously has gone through the extensive rigorous testing of safety and efficacy required by the FDA and scrutinized carefully by pharmacologists, toxicologists, uh, and GMP specialists in manufacturing. So they're they're quite different. Um, Dietary supplements can, of course, have great benefit to health and often are accessible to a wide diversity of populations. Um, They sometimes have less, as you know, rigorous uh, manufacturing standards and or sourcing. Uh, So uh, there are sometimes concerns about what somebody actually might be taking or getting and or the the safety associated with the same. Um, In terms of the botanical drug versus uh, a pharmaceutical per se, there's no difference except that uh, the botanical drug has had to go through additional rigorous assessment by botanical review team as to the identity uh, sourcing management of the uh, standard operating procedures for collections um, and then uh, demonstration of rigorous batch-to-batch consistency for every single pill that is sold under a prescription. Um, so they are, they are very different um, and they, I think they obviously both have 
great uh, utilities. There's a huge, I guess at this time, interest more and more in some dietary supplements associated with general immune health for obvious reasons. So um, there, there are distinct kinds of access to plant-based products if you have a botanical drug that is approved as part of a pharmaceutical uh, review process at the FDA. Yeah, and this is, you know, not a homeopathic remedy. There definitely are pharmaceutically relevant levels of active compounds that are derived from nature in this final formulation that elicit, as you said, an effect in rigorous clinical trials. And I think that's, that makes a big difference. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. safety too. I think everybody's concerned about safety. One of the wonderful things about crophelomer is that it's basically not absorbed. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't go into the liver. It doesn't go in the bloodstream. It doesn't interact with other chemicals. Um, and uh, that always makes both patients and medical care providers uh, e even happier because um, we know there's a lot of issues of drug-drug interactions. And, and, of course, can happen with dietary supplements as well, as you know. Yeah. Well, I know part of your role is in both ethnobotany, sustainability, and intellectual property. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the, how the company has worked within the Convention on Biological Diversity um, I feel like a lot of ethnobotanists are sometimes afraid of like, how do you even begin this process? <laughs> there's, there's often this, this um, blockade almost where economic might be considered to be a bad or economic botany is considered a dirty word because it has to do with yeah. money. But I mean, it's, it's all about the utility of plants and how can we use plants to improve human good across the board, including in the, you know, the, the, con the future consumers, but also the producers. And I was wondering if you had any pearls of wisdom to offer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, th and that's huge. I, I actually, it makes me very sad uh, to see the degree to which basic at the botanical research teams, both national and international have been block stopped or, uh, or made almost impossible due to the extreme concern and paranoia about exploitation by foreign companies or countries and or even internal national researchers, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's one of the, it's a sad byproduct of the, a great thing, which is the Convention on Biological Diversity and the, the desire to protect both the, the rights of local people, uh, nations, as well as uh, healers and so on. Um, I, I, I will start by saying that um, it's, a, it's a huge topic to me. Um, we started out in 1990 with all these ethnobotanists knowing that we would have to operate uh, very differently than any standard pharmaceutical company uh, up to that point. Um, we did quite a bit of research where we did uh, immediate and medium-term reciprocity with the countries and cultures that we worked with. That literally meant that there was negotiations and discussions and agreements done in advance of ever going somewhere, um, an agreement to provide 15, 20% of a research budget uh, for local community uh, needs as defined by the community, not by us. Um, we published a lot of that stuff. We also started a, um, a nonprofit called the Healing Forest Conservancy, uh, which was run by an anthropologist, Katie Moran, for a number of years, uh, whose goal and purpose was to return a portion of those benefits back to the countries and cultures we've worked with once we reached profitability. Um, I'll stop for one second and say that I personally um, think these, these issues 
uh, are germane to the dietary supplement and phytomedicine industry as well. Any, any, any organization or company or consumer that is benefiting from the use of plant medicine and knowledge of indigenous healers and, and, and in various countries should in some form or fashion have a way to have some of that benefit go to those places oh, and people. I agree. And, and it's expensive to do sometimes. So dietary supplement companies at times have a, a pretty small margins and they have a difficult time. Um, and or just don't put that into their whole equation, but they've sort of been they, there. I think it's just as much an obligation there as, as, as there is for a pharma product. Um, yeah. In terms of the Commission of Biodiversity, we well, some of the things we also did was we we did a pilot long term benefit return to uh, a trust fund in Nigeria where we actually sent about forty thousand dollars to a trust fund that was composed of teachers, environmentalists, and government people, uh, and other scientists and tracked how that was utilized in a transparent fashion as a sort of test case of how to return those benefits. That's as important as, as doing it. Um, that trust funds are a pretty well known and regarded method to return benefits or share things amongst communities so it doesn't get taken and directed the wrong way. Um, so we, we have gone out of our way to do all the steps required by the Convention on Biological Diversity. Uh, we, we were sort of, we started what, a little before the convention was even in place. That was in 1992 in Rio and some of the conversations we started in 1990. So we were um, quite keen and positive and supportive of those measures um, and did follow them with the countries and cultures that we worked with throughout the process. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm sad to the extent that there has become a cloud associated with basic ethnobotanical research with the concern that somebody's going to be exploiting and taking the resources from people. And no question that that took place uh, significantly in the, in the early 20th century. So um, yeah, I think there, it, I think there's the cloud of, you know, of colonial mm -hmm. exploitation that still lingers, but yeah, I think, one of the challenges is really in also setting expectations. Um, you know, in my own work with medicinal plants, it's the light. I mean, our, our hope, our deepest desire is that someday we too will be able to move some of these discoveries into a broader public venue so that others can benefit from medical innovations based on natural products from medicinal plants. But the reality is that out of the 600 species that we're working on in the lab, <laughs> wow. maybe, maybe one or two, but maybe not will ever make right. it through. Right. And so I'm a big believer, even from the academic side in starting benefit sharing, however we can as academics. And one way is really in knowledge exchange and capacity building. So we've put a lot of our time into training um, scientists in countries where we work. Yeah. offering you know research opportunities that they can bring back to their universities and build up and expand upon training or offer access to resources um yeah so i think there, there are lots of ways but i think that ethos that you're speaking about of of wanting to start with um equity from from day one is really really important you know i totally agree with you um that that because at times you you help you can help train or add technical expertise to scientists who then get involved with local phytomedicine, traditional mm -hmm. public health products like in Ghana or the Philippines or Peru, where they use that expertise to, to make semi-purified 
products that can be locally utilized and provide public health benefits without ever leaving the country and or find partners like yourself. So I'm, I 100% agree. We, 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 bought, we bought scientists from, from the Philippines, from Ecuador, from Papua New Guinea, from all over the world to do six, seven months of stays at our labs when we had them. So I, you're right on track. I totally agree that the, the, the benefits that flow of t exchanging, teaching, um, supporting, um, I think that's, that's the answer, frankly, for many, many reasons. Yeah. Well, and moving forward, currently, where, where are your, where is your product licensed now? Where can it be prescribed? Is it in the U.S.? Is it also in Europe? Or where in the world is it currently available? You, you know, and, at, this, yeah. at this time, it is only approved um, by the U.S. FDA in terms of its regulatory accessibility. Um, so that's the only place that patients with physicians can obtain it. There is a program uh, that one organization we have found we are delighted by patients in other countries who have a specific problem. If their country doesn't have the ability to provide something like this, and this is the only therapeutic approved for treating HIV AIDS related diarrhea, they can get it through a patient by patient basis. That's not quite the same, of course, of a, of a whole national level. Obviously, we're hoping that the uh, chemotherapy induced diarrhea product will get a much larger uh, access as well as this one. And of course, the one for cholera will absolutely need to be available throughout the, the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Steve, you've, you've been on just such an amazing journey. I mean, from your original work with the Nature Conservancy and then all this work with um, Crofelomir, what are your nuggets of wisdom or advice that you would give to others that are interested in studying herbal medicine or are interested in kind of the, you know, a sustainable development pipeline? Um, that's a big question. I, <laughs> I always throw the tough ones at you guys. That's yeah. a good one. That's good. Um, I believe that there is an enormous uh, importance for young scholars to continue to research and collaborate internationally uh, as much as possible. There is a huge need for basic research on the botany and taxonomy uh, and ecological composition of forests partly to help in efforts to promote conservation, also just for basic science. Combined with that is the need to help uh, young scientists and communities looking for ways to provide income to, their, to themselves and their communities through products. Uh, we've seen what's happened with things like acai or other not, not dietary supplement type things. So there can be a flow that can provide income to places that need it. Um, I would say that the the integration of ecology, uh, pharmacology, um, basic botany, uh, and related human studies, such as anthropology and linguistics, continue to be both fascinating and foundational to helping inform us about what is out there in the world, what we can do to help conserve both the cultural and linguistic diversity, as well as the biological diversity, and that any of those threads that, that, that entice or uh, enliven the, the spirit or mind of, of young researchers, they should, they should pursue, notwithstanding the potential challenges associated with, you know, like we're talking about the ethnobotanical part, but there's other, other ways to come at working with cultures and people without necessarily focusing on products per se, and yet still have the ability to add benefit and return some knowledge and science and, and also 
learned from those people, places, and cultures, uh, which is its own richness on of itself. Oh, absolutely. And from your time in the tropics, would you say that we still have much still to explore when it comes to the medicinal potential of nature? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. So you, you and I are talking about this plant, you know, Scotal Nectari. That's one species mm-hmm. that's pretty well known among the, the medical pharmacopoeia of the Northwest Amazon. And I'm sure you could, you could mention 10 more um, without even thinking too hard. And, and so could I. And then add to that another 50 or 60 that not everybody's familiar with. And we're, look at the products that we're managing to, to, to develop and, 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 and make available from one species that's very well known. Um, yeah. So the answer is absolutely. When you said 600 in your lab, I mean, um, as you know, the iterative process of science, things are going to come out of some of the things that you're doing, other scientists are going to follow. So absolutely, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm going to leave us on that note of yes, there's a lot still to be done. And again, just huge kudos to you and the extensive team of scientists and community partners that have worked on this project because um, it's great to see such a success story and it's great to see how you've been able to achieve this also um, within those parameters of, of, of access and benefit sharing and ensuring that local communities benefit and also patients um, benefit from this first in class mechanism. That's just so exciting. I'm delighted to be able to talk to you about it and thank you very much for the opportunity. Great. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded on Zoom from home during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can subscribe to the podcast anywhere that you stream podcasts. We've got an awesome lineup of topics and shows for you this season, so be sure to subscribe online. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.